Good morning. There we go. There we go. Sounds like people might have had some coffee. Uh, I have a really quick job, which is to introduce Eric and Ann. But before I do that, I just want to say, check in with y'all. Everybody doing okay? One thing I, oh, I do have to tell you something. If you happen to be leaving, and let me tell you something, you're going to have to be leaving, but not yet. Uh, so we only played for this joint till like noon. Uh, if you have luggage and you're checking out of your room, you can put it on the third floor. We have a place to store your luggage. Uh, chances are you already heard that, but if you didn't, third floor for your luggage. All right, with that, oh, yeah, one other thing, and this is kind of a gripe, and forgive me for taking advantage of the opportunity with the microphone, but there's apparently a pregnant young lady here, young woman, and yesterday she walked into several sessions, kind of got back to me. She walked into several sessions, and no one offered her a seat. So... I don't mean to shame y'all, but I'm going to shame y'all. If you happen to see a woman who appears to be pregnant and you have a seat and she doesn't, this is my mom talking to y'all. Get up, offer her a seat. It ain't hard. All right, so with that, thank you. Yeah, please do that. Just, I'm, I'm deputizing all y'all. Just please do that. That's the right thing to do. That's how we roll. Okay, I now need to I have the privilege and honor to introduce Anne and Eric. And I also want to give a shout-out to our entire Seattle Advisory Committee. It won't surprise y'all to hear... In the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of Omicron, we were like, you know what, gang? Shit, we're going to try to do this in person next year. We don't know what's going to happen or if any of y'all are going to show up. And by the way, this is the largest comnet we've ever had, which is astonishing and cool. Can't tell from the moment because I think people are still eating, but suffice to say it is. But everybody in Seattle was like, we want to be part of this. We want to help. We want to contribute. And so what you're about to see is a reflection of that. And Ann and Eric had a huge role in putting together this panel. So if you wouldn't mind, please give it up for Ann Martins and Eric Hauser. Good morning, everybody. Um, hope you're all having a wonderful time. So just to set the stage real quick, I'm Ann Martins, uh, formerly of the Gates Foundation, currently of the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. My name is Eric Hauser, and I work for a funders collaborative called We Are In. And when I was at the Gates Foundation, Eric was at the Campion Foundation, we got together and um, participated in this funders collaborative, did some of the pre-work to set up this new government agency that I currently work for. We looked around, saw that uh, our solutions to homelessness were not working and that maybe they should be redesigned. And so we are now a year and a half into a brand new countywide government agency that is focused on homelessness. Um, we control the public funds. Eric's funders collaborative controls the private funds and we are looking to make change. And so with that, we will bring up our bosses. And the moderator. Uh, please welcome Scott Greenstone, who is a journalist, worked on the Seattle Times Project Homeless for many years. <clears throat> Who's going? Uh, next is Derek Bellegard, CEO of the Chief Seattle Club. Uh, and then is my boss, Felicia Salcedo, the executive director of We Are In. And my boss, Mark Jones. Mm. <laughs> oh. Let's, yeah, 
All right. Thank you all for coming. I, I know, you know, when you say that an issue is important, it doesn't necessarily mean um, here's why you should care about it. And so I really, um, I really appreciate you all coming today. If you've been here a few days, you have probably seen someone without a home. You have probably walked by someone living in a car or an RV. You might not have even known that someone was living in it. Um, and if you, if you go and talk to those folks, like I have, like many of the folks up here have, um, like some of you have, um, you, you'll hear so many different stories. Um, you'll hear, I was kicked out of home as a child, I lost my job, uh, I have a substance use disorder, my mental health. Um, and of course, if you talk to experts, most of them, um, you'll hear a pretty simple story, the cause of like this huge rise that we're all seeing, many of you in many of your cities, um, is, is due to housing and a lack of, of very cheap housing uh, for low-income folks. So it's, it's kind of this, this problem we have when we're, we're communicators and we're trying to communicate about homelessness. It's, you know, homelessness is simple, it's complicated, it's systems, systems that many of us will never have to interact with in our life. Um, and it's also people who are, you know, probably the most complicated subjects of all. So, um, you know, how do we communicate about a complicated issue in a way that is honest, but is also not stigmatizing? Um, and I don't know. So this is, this is good that we have these folks here. Um, I want to start by just asking you each to introduce yourselves and say, um, say what your job description is or, or, or kind of tell us like honestly what you do every day, what, what your job description is and then what you find yourself actually doing day to day. And let's start, why don't we start with Mark? Uh, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Mark Dones, I use they them pronouns. I am the Chief Executive Officer uh, of the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. Um, my uh, job, this is, will be funny, actually technically does lack a JD. <laughs> It's uh, like many appointed positions where it's like, I don't know, like, this is your job now. Have fun with that. Um, but, um, you know, you've heard me say this before. I think of my job as, as being sort of chief cat herder, right? So um, homelessness is uh, a deeply solvable uh, issue in our society. It doesn't need to exist. Um, and... Uh, the issue, from my perspective, uh, has been for many, many years. We've been unable to mobilize full communities to respond to homelessness um, because with any issue that is multi-sector, um, has you know, a lot of different roads into it, sort of one way out, housing, right? Um, you have to have everybody uh, working towards the same solution, right? You can't have well, I want to do this, and I want to do this, and this is my fiefdom, and I've got this theory of change, you know, like, which is frankly where we were, right? Um, when I first got here in, in uh, 2018 to do an audit that then created this agency in 2020. Um, and so much of my work uh, every day is uh, partnership, very straightforwardly, right? Some of that um, is, you know, through the, the space of our contracts and our funding and, you know, the way that we shape those relationships. Um, and other things are, you know, the work that I do with uh, Felicia and others um, to work with the business community, to work with funders, to work with, um, you know, our 
uh, you know, restaurant community. Like there's a, a long list of, of constituencies um, that are waiting to be activated to be part of the solution, and it's my job to do that. Yeah, great. Felicia? Sure. Thanks, Scott. So I'm Felicia Salcedo. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the executive director of We Are In. And we are a fairly new organization. As Eric mentioned, we're a funders collaborative, so that includes folks from business and philanthropy, many of the major names I'm sure many of you are familiar with here in our region, um, who have been investing in the issues of housing and homelessness for quite some time and have not seen the progress that I think we were all hoping for. And so it's really an opportunity for them to come together as a coalition to have more strategic investments and more impact with those investments. We also work very closely with other partners, so external from government, uh, folks with lived experience of homelessness themselves, making sure that they're the center of our solutions uh, because they're the closest to the solutions, and also uh, with general members of the community. So our work is yes in grant making. We have financial con contributions to the system response, but we also think a lot about what is the story that we're trying to tell about this issue? How do we make sure that the general public really understands these issues and the root causes of homelessness? So while your experience may be passing tents on the street on your way to work, how did those people get there? Um, and that's not something that we do well, I think, as a system, is really help explain the systemic causes uh, that create the conditions that allow people in our community to be homeless. So that's what we spend our time on and what I spend a lot of my day on, in addition to being in meetings with, with these two folks <laughs> fairly <laughs> regularly um, about, about those strategies. Derek. Uh, hello, everybody. Derek Belgard, uh, use he, him pronouns. I'm an enrolled member of the Confederated Tribes of Sluts Indians of Oregon. I'm also Chippewa Cree from Rocky Boy, Montana. I'm currently the executive director for the Chief Seattle Club. We're a nonprofit here in downtown Pioneer Square area of Seattle that serves, addresses the many needs of the urban native community. We exist because of um, a lot of issues that we face in urban centers. Most Native Americans don't live on reservations anymore. They live in urban centers. And a lot of that is not because of choice or because of uh, desire. It's because of bad policies, bad situations that enticed and lured people off reservations, promising them equity or promising them wealth or, or prosperity and all those things in urban centers, such as jobs and housing and all that. Basically, it was a poverty trap, and it still continues today. So we, we're here, you know, in this area, Native Americans are 1% of the general population, but we make up 15% of the homelessness rate, 32% of the chronic homelessness rate, pretty much all the bad statistics, social sciences study. Um, and uh, so that's why we're here to address those things. We make up 1% of the population, but that, it's just a gross disparity, and that is what we do to fight on, on a day-to-day -day basis. We have wraparound social services. And we've recently uh, dove into the um, property development and, pro and become property providers. We're, um, we, um, we're building permanent supportive housing these days. So. And uh, I should say I'm Scott Greenstone. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, and I, um, was, I covered homelessness at the Seattle Times when Mark started their job. Uh, and I also helped produce a podcast called Outsiders uh, on homelessness in one small city um, in, in, here in Washington. Um, I wanted to ask, I wanted to start with a, a question for Felicia. You mentioned talking about the story of how people, you know, end up uh, in a tent in an <clears throat> RV, something like that. When, we, when, when, when I started, there was a rise in homelessness nationally, but it was just because of a few really expensive cities on the West Coast, right, that were seeing real rises. Um, now it seems like I see headlines every day that 
you know, folks are, camp, um, you know, in encampments in, in cities on the East Coast and the Midwest in places where people are not used to seeing uh, outdoor homeless encampments. Can you kind of describe why, why this is happening, you know, around the country and why, why are we seeing it right now? Yeah, it's a great question. And yes, homelessness has been on the rise here for a number of years. I think, again, putting the issue of homelessness, the visible crisis that people see in context of our history as a nation is really critical because that helps us to illuminate what the solutions are, right? So we didn't get here by accident. There were decisions that were made, policy decisions that were made, community level decisions that were made that, again, create the conditions that allow people to become homeless. So a lot of that has to do with housing. Um, as many of you already are aware, housing is really the, the baseline that you need to be thriving in a community. It provides security, it provides comfort, and it is often of time in a place where people are able to generate wealth. And so in the history of our country, certain groups of people have, been, have had access to housing and, and generational wealth, and others have not. And again, that is by design. That is because of policies that we have adopted in our community. Whether they are racially explicit or not, they have had racially explicit outcomes. And so to Derek's comments about the overrepresentation of Native people in the homelessness population, that is by design. Um, they are one of the historic populations that has been kept out from the housing that, that is available in our community and from that wealth generation. Um, in addition to that, we see overrepresentation of other people of color as well. So for the Latinx community, um, for the black African-American population, those groups also are, are the vast majority of people experiencing homelessness in our community and across the nation. So I just want to be super clear that it is, again, not by accident. There are reasons why we are in the situation that we're in, and they tie back to those policies that we've had historically around housing and wealth generation. So again, for that context, I think it, it helps provide more insight into what's happening here on the West Coast. Um, so we've seen a large growth in our population over time. And housing is infrastructure for a community. So just as you think about public transportation and the investments that are necessary to make sure that you can move between communities from where you live to where you uh, work, we also need to have housing as the infrastructure for a community. And so we have severely suppressed the development of housing over time, again, because of policies that we've adopted um, at the government level and at the community level. And so we are seeing these growth in populations and unfortunately we do not have the housing stock and definitely not the affordable housing stock to be able to accommodate those population level growths. And so homelessness is a byproduct of that. It's a symptom of the larger issue. And so again, as we see the homelessness population grow, who are the most likely to be pushed into homelessness? Again, it's people of color. So for Seattle King County in particular, it's two thirds of the population that we serve. So again, a vast, vast overrepresentation um, from specific communities. It also includes other intersecting identities. So people who are disabled, for example, people who identify as LGBTQ. Um, all of those are compounding identities that, that make it more likely that someone may experience homelessness in their lifetime. When we talk about chronic homelessness, it seems sometimes I think the disconnect, folks disconnect in their mind between, well, well this person that I see, they seem so far from, uh, you know, from, from housing, from the ability to like, like be in the housing, housing market the way I you know, interact with it. And a lot of the time uh, for chronic homelessness, I think 
when you bring up that housing is the cause, people respond by saying, well, but what about drugs? You know, what about substance use disorders? And I, I want to, you know, Derek, you've experienced homelessness yourself. And I, want, I wonder what you say when people say that. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it's definitely part, but it's not all, you know, and I'll be all. I will have been... Um, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic addict. I've been an alcoholic probably since 12 years old. Probably um, got into meth probably 14, 15 in there. I sobered up about 13, 14 years ago. It's actually where I work now that actually got me the help I need um, and got me back on what we call the red road. Start working on myself, my spirit, my, my being, and recovering from my childhood traumas and stuff like that. But it's definitely um, a part uh, of it, but it's not that... It, it's not that easy just to say that it's alcohol or drugs that lead to the homelessness. Like I said, there was bad policies that led my native community into homelessness. There was promises of the Relocation Act of the 50s and 60s relocation programs that actually taught people, they promised them job trainings, put them up in housing. They still do those things today, and you know, subsidies and all that. They were bad promises like for 500 years and led to that. And we still have generations of Chief Seattle Club today that we know or have never been housing secured in their families since they've been in the urban cities. And that, that was a direct response to that. Um, I also, in my experience, for me, I, my, my homelessness was alcohol and drugs. I'll be honest and upfront about that. Um, that's what led to mine. I was a functional alcoholic very early in life, and, um, and, and, but it got to the point where I couldn't drink anymore, drinking a fifth of you know, tequila every day, couldn't maintain jobs anymore, burned all my relationships, my family, estranged from my children and wife, and, um, and I had nowhere to go. I was on the streets of Seattle and um, on the east side, um, you know, still trying to maintain. <clears throat> and it was when I finally hit my rock bottom where I was thinking suicide and all those things that I was like, my children need me and need something better. Something finally came out into me, and I went and got the help I did through the Chief Seattle Club. Did uh, seven months in a treatment center and a Native appropriate treatment center, and it was actually um, very healing. Got me back on there, and um, I've been in recovery ever since. And I, you know, and, I, and I've solved and addressed that. Um, and but working at the Chief Seattle Club, and that, that's just happened to be coincidence. After I sobered up, I went to school, got a master's degree and um, started working in the nonprofit community. And it just, just coincidentally, I found myself back at the club. So I really feel it was my, my duty, my calling. Um, but since I've been there for you know, seven and a half, eight years, I've witnessed many people. One of, the, one of the leading contributors to homelessness in our community is aging, just aging out of childhood, really. Primarily aging out of foster care system but also just aging out of homes, becoming an adult, not having any, um, you know, nothing to fall back on, no chances of, um, you know, economic anything, right? So uh, we see a lot of youngsters start utilizing our services at the Chief Seattle Club that are sober and clean. Um, and it's, it's very sad and hard to watch because we see our relatives. We call our members our relatives. We co that's how we, in our world, that's what we feel, that everybody is united, everybody is related, we're all relations. Um, and when you see, we've seen youngsters come in 18-ish, 19-ish, healthy, vibrant, strong, clean, um, but it may be aged out of foster care, or aged out of their home where their parents aren't going to take care of them anymore, or something like that, sober and clean. 
but in a couple short years go down to actually developing mental health issues, paranoia, schizophrenia, those things, talking to themselves, mumbling, no longer being able to communicate. And we see the drug use and alcoholism come on after the homelessness a lot of times. So it's, it's definitely um, not just as simple as like alcohol and drugs is what's leading to it. It's a hard life being on the streets. It's a hard life, especially, you know, um, in some ways it's a medication for living in the harsh realities. You know, being outside, cold, freezing. I'm not sure where everybody else here is from, but in Seattle, it's, not, it's thought of as not a very cold city like a Minneapolis or something, or Buffalo, New York, or things like that. But it is this Puget Sound, I tell you, it gets pretty freaking cold. And, um, you know, December, January, you know, no matter how many layers on, that wind is, you know, it's harm, it's painful. And one of the only things that I would think about when I was out there sleeping in an Occidental would, you know, as, as some whiskey or some tequila, <laughs> keep me warm and keep me, you know, and um, like I said, it was a very, um, very hard emotionally and spiritually being out there. And the thoughts of things like, you know, of, of just ending things and things like that, though you want those, quiet those things and, you know, and it amplified my use. And I have seen it. I mean, maybe I'm rambling now, but that does lead on. And I, I think it's definitely balanced at the, at the most, I would argue. Yeah. It definitely isn't um, leads. That's the main thing we got to think about is just solving out, you know, addictions. Because everybody does deserve a home and a place to stay. And like my own sobriety for 20 some years of alcohol and meth and any other form of drugs I could get on if I had to find a replacement, if I wasn't taken care of and housed for seven months in a treatment center, I sure the hell would, wouldn't have made it, right? So like if we are gonna address anybody's alcohol or drugs issues anyways, they need to be housed, safe, in transitional shelters, something. They can't be on the streets and think that you're going to cure any of those issues. Yeah. Right. It's, so, yeah. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Um, another th thing that gets brought up a lot when, when folks talk about housing um, is the solution is, is I think, well, what about mental health treatment? Mark, y you have experiences with the mental health treatment system. And I'm, I'm wondering if what do you say when people say that to you? Um, a couple of things. Uh, I want to pick up really crisply on, on what Derek said, because I think it's important, particularly for communicators to understand. <clears throat> um, regardless of what's going on in someone's life, being unhoused is going to make that worse. That's very straightforward, right? Um, and I don't think we say that clearly enough, just candidly, right? We have a lot of conversations about causes of homelessness that are immaterial. And I, I, wanted, like, I, I need to drill down on that before I answer your question. Because, so my job, right, like if we drill into the function of my agency, is to be this county's emergency room for people experiencing homelessness, right? The solution is housing, right? We can, uh, you know, dispense with that. But essentially, like, uh, in the same way that if you are in an ER, right, um, if I'm your uh, ER administrator, if I can see you, the worst thing has already happened. You've already had the heart attack. You've already, like, the thing that took you to the ER has happened. The preventative has already failed, right? And so my job becomes how can I stabilize you as rapidly as possible and get you out of this ER, right? 
Um, and I, I want to really stick with that metaphor because it should be that simple. It should not be a question of, you know, uh, oh, like, you know, did you, like, we don't, we don't look at people who've had heart attacks and say, I need to ask you a lot of questions about your diet before I treat you for your heart attack. That's a <laughs> ludicrous proposition, right? Uh, you don't come into an ER with, you know, a severed thumb and get a lecture on, you know, tool safety. That's not a thing. Um, but we make it a thing in the homelessness space because we are inappropriately obsessed with people's private business and it is only acceptable for us to be in that business because they are too vulnerable to tell us to get out of it. It is predatory and it is wrong. So I need to be clear about that because if you all, as communicators in various ways, right, are going to carry this message appropriately, I need you to stop asking questions that aren't your business. <laughs> that said, <laughs> I have no problem talking about that I'm crazy. <laughs> um, and I actually think that it's important well, I mean, I, I have no problem talking about it. I'm crazy for a lot of reasons. One is, like, I think that, like, crazy people deserve role models, too. And I hope I'm doing that for somebody. <laughs> Two, um, I think that, like, the how I... So I've been uh, institutionalized twice. Both times were uh, once in my teens and once in my uh, very early 20s. Um, and, uh, and while I may not look at it, I'm much older than that now, so I'm good. <laughs> um, I hope I don't look it. Don't tell me if I do look it. <laughs> Um, so what I will say though, is that like part of why I am here today is I actually experienced those, like, so I also experienced some housing instability. I couch surfed for two years, uh, in my mid twenties. Um, but, uh, by then I was actually like medicated and stable. Right. And so, uh, it was a, like, both of those are disaggregated from each other. Right. Um, and the reason why I'm fine is because when I was institutionalized, I then got to go back to a house. It's very straightforward, right? Like, um, and in many instances, what we do to people is we medically stabilize them and say, go outside now, which is not a solution. Um, so my experience with the behavioral health system has largely been positive because it has been self-directed predominantly, right? Like, and in the moments that I had a true crisis, I was able to address the, the uh, biomedical crisis I was having without also having to simultaneously address a material crisis of where am I going to sleep? Thank you for sharing that too. Um, I, I, I think when we talk about like these spaces for folks to go after, you know, uh, hospital stay, um, after um, you know detox or whatever, they're going to cost money. Obviously, this is kind of a stupid question, but uh, Mark loves stupid questions. <laughs> That's a joke. Um, Mark doesn't like stupid anything. Mark, like stupid <laughs> Mark actually thinks we have a responsibility has, as communicators to tell people I think, when a thing is dumb. I mean, this is this is this is actually uh, this is actually uh, not totally stupid, but but it's I just an obvious you. question. <laughs> um, these are going to cost money, and your jobs all uh, have to do with persuading folks to spend more money on a problem that we have spent money on, and as we've spent money on it, it has gotten worse. How do you do that? What? How do you communicate and persuade? And uh, this one's open to anyone, Felicia. Yeah, I'm happy to start. Well, I would 
challenge your premise, Scott, I think. So we spend a ton of money on homelessness right now because we're not addressing it. So if we want to continue to use um, the criminal legal system, the emergency rooms as a stopgap solution, which is what we're doing, we pay for that. And it costs a lot of money. Yep. What doesn't cost a lot of money is putting someone in permanent supportive housing, providing mm. them a unit. So again, I think as communicators, we have done a poor job talking about how we spend on the issue of homelessness. When we only talk about programs in the crisis response, that is a fraction of the cost we pay because we are not addressing this issue holistically or getting to the root causes, again, that allow people to become homeless. As Mark said, when we are interacting with folks who are accessing the crisis response system, the worst thing has already happened to them. There were a number of opportunities that they were engaged in education with the healthcare system, perhaps with behavioral health systems, um, where we did not allow them to get the services that they really needed. And so we have missed opportunities as a community to support people, to support our neighbors, and have allowed them to become homeless. And that is what is really costing us. And so for us to increase investments in the things that actually work, the things that we have evidence um, around ending people's homelessness for, that is where we're gonna have cost savings actually as a community. And so I think, again, as communicators, sharing the context of what we already pay for, it's incredibly expensive to send someone to the emergency room. It's incredibly expensive to call 911 and have an ambulance sent, or for someone then to have ch charges put against them for misdemeanors and cycling through the criminal legal system. And again, we already pay for that. So we are incurring that cost and there are better ways to do it. Can I add something briefly? So I also, I wanna pick up on a word you said, which is context. We do a really poor job contextualizing like government spending, right? So like I look at headlines about my agency and it'll be like, you know, homelessness authority asked for $20 million. And you know, that feels like a lot of money to us personally, right? In government, that's like a rounding error. And you all know that. <laughs> but you don't write that. I don't know why you don't write that. <laughs> and like, I need to be super clear that, you know, like the, in, in context, right? Like I run a countywide agency with a base budget this year of roughly $180 million, right? Comparatively, countywide on law enforcement, we spend north of a billion dollars. Countywide on transit, we spend north of $5 billion. Countywide, like, you know, like infrastructure that is operant at the county level costs a billion dollars. But for this particular thing, it should cost not that because we don't contextualize that that's just the cost of doing business at this scale. Like, it, it actually isn't controversial to say spend the right amount of money on the problem but our contempt for poor people is so thinly veiled mm -hmm. that in this place, it's weird to say we should spend that amount of money. Mm -hmm. I would just, I would add to that, I mean, to your point about our concern about poor people and, and being good stewards of resources. So Mark's agency is not even really a year old and has already been audited. I would say homeless like a full state audit. services are, and, and social services more generally, Derek can attest to this as well, are probably the most audited components of local government. 
which is incredible when these are dollars that are a drop in the bucket compared to other things that we spend on. And the support is for poor people. Why are we so critical of resources going to the most vulnerable members of our community and not to agencies or other institutions that have a lot of money and frankly do not have the results to prove that they are making the changes that the community demands. Whereas in homelessness, we can just definitively say that our services move people to permanent housing. Right. Do you want to add anything, Derek? Um, you don't have to. Yeah, oh, well, I, <laughs> I can. Um, I just want to point out that um, for my native community and other BIPOC communities, this problem has been far greater, longer of a problem than what people kind of think about when they think about the homelessness crisis or whatever they want, whatever they want to call it. Native Americans have been 10, 15 times more likely to have housing insecurity for, for 30 years, for 40 years, 70s. And it's always been a crisis and a problem in our community. We've always been marginalized and a lot of other BIPOC communities and other specialized communities have been totally disenfranchised out of the system. So what I, I, I would just say is that we definitely need more funding and we get to, need to be okay with spending money down. One of the things why our numbers haven't went down for the last 40, 50 years is because we, there wasn't empowering um, BIPOC-led organizations, Native organizations, to lead the way to deal with Native homelessness. Things are starting to change now, but it still isn't done in, in an appropriate way. Like I just said, 15% of the homeless, 32% of the chronic homelessness, we should actually get a big chunk of money spent, being spent in the area, but we don't in the overall scheme of things. And if we're going to address it and actually be equitable about it, that needs to change. Because um, that's where your change is going to come from. That's where the success rate's going to come from, is having BIPOC-led organizations to handle it. One of the differences between your system and the, the systems that you mentioned, transit and policing, um, is that the government pays nonprofits to do the work rather than governments for mm -hmm. service delivery. And uh, ever since I've been covering homelessness, people have said like, well, what can we trust nonprofits to fix a problem that if they fixed it, they'd be out of business? And I, I kind of ignored it for a while, but then once when we were talking, uh, before you started your, your job here, um, Mark, you said the words nonprofit industrial complex, and I'm wondering sort of, what did you mean by that? Can we, can, you know, what would, do you say to those folks who are like, well, can we trust nonprofits? Can we trust the government service delivery model that, that doesn't go, you know, that goes through, uh, through nonprofits? Yeah. I mean, like, I've been, over the course of my career, deeply critical of, uh, you know, neoliberal market formations that operate through NGOs. I think, like, the, um, you know, largely Reagan-era defunding of the government uh, and converting all of that core infrastructure um, into nonprofit infrastructure was a fundamentally bad decision. Like, I don't need to, um, so, um, I mean, and also this is the thing about communicating, call a thing a thing, like, I don't need, I don't have time, I'm, I, like, I'm about to be late to meet with the governor, so, like, I gotta go in a minute, so I gotta get through this, but, like, so, um, so, like, like, that's straightforwardly true, right? Uh, the other aspect of that, though, that I think is important to note is that the, the, and I think you've seen this in terms of how the authority has, has begun to move, right? Is that like, uh, there's a reason why we brought on our own sort of system advocate, peer navigator team, right? And didn't bid that function out. Um, and the logic behind that is that, you know, I, again, clarity 
in thought, clarity, and action, there are functions that this agency will re recall, right? There are functions that this agency will split, right? And there are functions that this agency will delegate. And those have to be meaningful decisions, right? Um, and so from my perspective, the delegated functions should be ongoing functions, right? The, this agency should not exist at this scale in this way in 10 years, right? But Derek's should, because Derek's ongoing function of providing housing for our native community is a permanent feature, right? And past prologue, government has indicated we don't run housing well. Like, we've seen that tried a couple times in a lot of ways, and it's always ended real bad. So, like, I don't, I don't need to try to be smarter than 100 years of the same policy failure. Like, that's not a good use of time, right? But, so what that means is that when I think about how we should trust our partners, one, we should trust our partners, but we should disabuse ourselves of the notion that everyone is trying to go out of you know, business, right? And instead, like we should run government more like initiatives, particularly around these kinds of like uh, crisis operations, right? Like if we get out of the crisis of unsheltered homelessness, my agency doesn't need to exist in the way that it does. But again, right, these other functions that are ongoing need to remain. And so like, I think we often are in a, a posture of you know, sort of equating everything to uh, uh, you know, sort of business metrics, et cetera. And I think the other thing that we need to simply do is say like public sector work is different. And so the conversation we have to have about it is different. It doesn't need to be unintelligible, right? Like we can talk about it with this level of clarity, but we do need to, to, um, to own, right? That like some things uh, need to go away <laughs> and we should just be able to say like those things will senesce on this time frame. I haven't got to use the word senesce in a while. <laughs> um, when we talk about what to call things, like calling a thing a thing, um, one of the things that people are really excited about um, or in, in some cities, some elected officials, some people in the public are, and again, different words for these, tiny houses, tiny homes. Um, these are the kinds of solutions that are cheaper and faster, but have been criticized as not so long term. How do you talk about how do you communicate about these kind of stopgap solutions, which are so often the, um, what, what you are having to set up in homelessness? How do you talk about them? So I think the first thing that I would say is they're not faster. They're just not, right? Like, there are apartments that exist that people could be in, right, now. <laughs> so, like, that's the same speed, if not faster, than standing up a new, like, micromodular, tiny home, whatever you want to call it, shelter, right? Um, and uh, what I think you'll see under uh, the authority's leadership is a system rotation towards uh, actually focusing on housing people as, like, the thing, right? So what I tell my team when they bring me proposals is, if I can't see clearly how this terminates rapidly in housing, you need to go rework it. Like, because like, that's our only job. And so to the extent that we, and I, again, right, like I 
policing a thing. So we have overinvested in this country in shelter as a response to homelessness, and it has been a disaster. It was stupid. We should stop. Um, and because the infrastructure that we need is housing infrastructure, right? Um, and there, and and it took COVID, a global pandemic that ground everything to a halt, to show us somehow that like government has the same ability to buy buildings, right? Like so, like things exist that we can activate to to cure the problem that do not require even the stand-up time of a new shelter, yeah. right? Um, and so one of the things that I want to lift up, for example, right, so, you know, you covered this, um, you helped fund it. <laughs> um, but the, so the authorities launched um, what we call Partnership for Zero, um, which is a, you know, multi-system, uh, multi-partner effort to end unsheltered homelessness in the, the downtown core of Seattle. Um, that initiative, uh, you know, was funded, and then we had to ramp and staff and yada, yada, yada. Um, we deployed teams to start getting a sense of how many people were experiencing homelessness about mid-August, but we formally launched uh, really about September 1, right? Um, so it's been about a month and a half. On September 1, we had a list of about 200 people. We had no identified housing units, uh, and we were like, mm, and we don't necessarily know like, how much money we have to like, you know, sort of rededicate to housing uh, folks, right? Fast forward, right? Um, because this is an emergency, and when you do things in an emergency style, you do them quickly, because that's the point. <laughs> um, we have identified 310 units of housing. That list has grown to uh, uh, 679 individuals who we are building a relationship with. And when I left work yesterday, um, 10 folks were shopping in that 310-unit uh, marketplace. And right as I walked out the door, I heard that two people were proceeding to lease up, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's 30 days of work. Um, and what I want to be clear about is all that all, those 310 units, those are private marketplace units, right? Those are private landlords. That is not, uh, you know, permanent supportive housing. It is not asking for, like, the development timeline that we often talk about homelessness in, where you have to build our way out of this in 20 years. No, we do not. We can access the available housing market in a different way and get people into it rapidly. And so what I would say around any conversation about any shelter type is, do we need that yet? Or are we actually just underutilizing our housing market because we don't know how to focus? Well, we have one minute um, left. I did want to very quickly ask each of you to share, you know, here in Seattle, we've tried new things, we have innovated, we've made mistakes. What in the communication strategies realm, like what do you think are some things that folks could take away here, could learn from, you know, mistakes uh, or, mm. or successes? One thing for us is, well, Sorry, Mark, I, I love you, and a lot of that stuff is right on, on a system-wide approach is getting rid of shelter, but with our native community, we need specialized carve-out things to address it. Whenever there's this whole system approach to do things, our native community gets further, further disenfranchised, marginalized out of the system, because it takes culturally appropriate services. Our community is so traumatized, and our level of PTSD and trauma as a collective community is so great. We also know that not only are we more likely to be homeless, stay homeless, housing insecure, we're also most likely to not get any services at all from any mainstream organizations, government, food stamps, I mean, anything, hospital treatment, medical treatment, any kind of services across the board. 
We know the only way to reach our community is through culturally appropriate services, and that's going to take a long, a, a kind of a long time to do. Like I said, we've gotten into property development <clears throat> and to, so we can house in our community and, and, and stabilize our community. And one of the things that we have to do, we have three buildings coming online in the next 15 months. It'll be like 230 units combined. We have 129 units, you know, more like 250. We have 129 units coming on in three months from now, both live, probably January. And um, <clears throat> we have a couple shelter sites. We have one actually active now. It's a modular home, modular unit one with about 30 beds. And we're actually open a tiny house village. It's going to be about 25. That still isn't enough, but we have to keep our community healthy in a, in a short-term capacity with, in, in some sort of way to make sure that we can house them in a culture-appropriate way for recidivism, and we just know that we are overlooked in any other kind of housing unit for racism and, and, and many other um, problems. But um, we have to have those, we have to have them tailored to our community. I, I'm really sorry, we're, we're yeah. past time now. Um, uh, I know Mark has to go, uh, and so I don't want to make either of you. I, yeah, I really appreciate everyone coming. Um, thank you for listening, and uh, thank you all for being here. I really appreciate it. Sir, appreciate you. Good luck with the governor. All right, everybody, uh, I'll make this quick because you have to be quick, but don't hurry. Uh, casework sessions are getting started in just a couple of minutes. If you see the app, you'll know where you want to go. You can also go on to comnet22.org for folks who have not yet downloaded the app. But check the schedule. We'll see you back in here uh, to tell you two things. One, where we're going next year, and we certainly hope you're going to be part of that. And then two, you're going to get a chance to hear from the winners of the Clarence B. Jones Impact Award, the Innocence Project. And if I tell you it's an extraordinary story, you're not going to, and packed with lots of practical insights we can all apply. Come back and see us. We'll see you in a bit.